It's a common trope nowadays in sermons to criticize people who excuse their sins with this phrase, the devil made me do it. And there's good reason to critique that. We are responsible for our own sins. They come from us and our will and our sinful hearts, not Satan. But responsibility for our sins does not exclude the influence and activity of Satan. Satan is active in the world. And Revelation makes that clear. Behind all the evil systems and forces of darkness lies the adversary. Behind every political system, every world system, every cultural thing that is against Christ is a dark force. And what seems harmless on the surface may have lying behind it a dragon, a kingdom of darkness, a beast. Heaven's perspective sobers us to realize we should really be careful how we engage with the world. We should really be careful about the ideas that we're imbibing through social media, through the internet, through movies, through culture, through even our own church culture. We have to be vigilant because there is an enemy and he does pull strings and have weight within this world. But the flip is true as well. Revelation chapter 9 specifically not only reveals what lies behind the dark systems of the world, but also the God of light and power and salvation who stands behind his church and all the forces of hell cannot stand against it. That should give us courage that yes, there are dark forces, but we have a greater resource. We have the triune God on our side. We have the risen Christ and his spirit and his sovereign father with us at all times. And this should give us great hope, confidence, and courage. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapter 9 continues John's second vision out of four in the book of Revelation. And this second vision began in Revelation 4. Christ ascends and receives a sealed scroll, which he alone is worthy to break. He breaks the first six scrolls before pausing to allow a symbolic number, 144,000, representing Jewish Christians who are sealed for martyrdom before God destroys the temple in 70 AD just as Jesus prophesied. Within a generation, Jesus, of of the people listening to Jesus, the temple is going to fall. And I think Revelation, again, is depicting that period between his ascension, the pouring out of the Spirit, and the destruction of the temple. Now, when the seventh seal breaks, final judgment doesn't come. It's kind of a surprise. But rather, seven more judgments come upon the land in the form of seven angels blowing seven trumpets. The seven trumpets expand upon the seven seals by focusing on the conflict that the word of God brings among Christians, Jews, and Romans in the first century. So the word of God is going to create conflict by removing peace. It's going to divide. That's what the second rider in the seal sequence does. And the seven trumpets expand upon the work of that second rider, of the word of God, the sword of God, removing peace and causing tension among people. But behind all these conflicts is a heavenly war of light and darkness. And Revelation 9 introduces an army of satanic locusts and a revelation of God's own heavenly army, the church, armed with the word of God who fights against it. So let's look at this satanic locust army first in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. 
Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have, as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So the fifth trumpet sounds, and another star falls from heaven to earth. Remember, stars represent people, and falling is an action that refers to satanic figures or Satan himself. And we established that in the last episode, in chapter 8, with the third trumpet that blows, with a star called Wormwood falling to the earth. Now, once again, here, stars are people, and falling stars refers to a satanic being. But in this fifth trumpet, this particular satanic being or force has a name. Abaddon in Hebrew, which means destruction, and Apollyon in Greek, which means destroyer. So he embodies destruction and destroys. This might be Satan himself or a satanic figure under his control. But what we see is that this particular figure if it's Satan, which I, I do think it would be Satan, brings about destruction by unleashing these satanic locusts who are described in strange terms. They're dressed like women. They have lion's teeth. They have armor and noisy wings and, and scorpion tails. And they're sent out to torment people for five months, but not kill them. They're also prevented from harming the earth, the trees, and the grass. And they're also prevented from harming those who are sealed by God. So God is still in control of this demonic horde, and they're accomplishing his purposes even though they're rallied against him. And that's an important thing to see. Now, some commentators suggest that the five months maps onto the literal five months that Jerusalem was sieged, and that lasted from April to August in 70 AD. The Jewish historian Josephus describes soldiers dressed with women's hair and clothing, robbing and murdering in demonic frenzy during the siege. These are actually Jewish soldiers. So in a siege, they cut off your supply lines, there's a famine, people go crazy because they're cooped up inside this city. And some of these Jewish soldiers were apparently going crazy and just killing and pillaging and attacking people within the land. So it's a lot of bloodshed. If you want the actual whole quote, you can actually read it uh, in a link that I'm going to put in the show notes. You can see the full quote. But again, there's all kinds of craziness. Some commentators who take this perspective point at the fact that these soldiers appeared harmless at first. Um, and, and this kind of parallels with the locusts. The locusts are, are tree-eating creatures, but these locusts don't eat trees. So it might kind of be like saying, you know, these, these locusts, they, they appear harmless because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They don't destroy in the way that you would think. But then these soldiers who seem like they're your friends, they would whip out swords and kill you like a scorpion's tail. So there might be some language play where it's saying these locusts aren't doing what you think they're doing, but they're still going to attack you and hurt you in the end. There's this deception there. We're not eating the things you think we are, but we're still going to harm you. That could be an interpretation. Other commentators suggest that this symbolizes 
the persecution of the church by Satan during the time after Pentecost to the destruction of the temple. So it's, it's speaking more about false teaching, infecting people, and sending people into a frenzy against the church. Peter Lightheart notes that Pentecost and the Day of Atonement are five months apart if you count inclusively, if you count Pentecost as month one and Day of Atonement as month five. The spirit poured out at Pentecost brings about further conflict, which hits a fever pitch in the bloodshed leading up to 70 AD, which would be the Day of Atonement. So there is actually, I think James Jordan is a commentator. He actually makes the case that uh, the book of Revelation follows the seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. I think there's an argument to be made there. It's a little complex, but that's one interpretation of what these five months could mean. It's symbolic of the time of Pentecost to the Day of Atonement, which kind of symbolically maps out the time of Pentecost with the Spirit poured out to the Day of Atonement destruction of Jerusalem. But who knows? I mean, this is difficult. I don't exactly know why they don't attack the earth and the trees and the grass. Maybe it's because it's flipping it. Uh, some of the other trumpet judgments attack the earth, the tree, and the grass. But here, maybe God's saying, I'm not, I'm turning my attention from attacking the elements of creation to attacking actual people. Perhaps. I don't really know. But I think there's something to be said about this symbolic view. Uh, the, the demonic spirits are coming out of a bottomless pit. And Peter Lighthart talks about how this language kind of assumes an inverted temple. It's a temple flipped upside down. So if you think about a temple, it's, it's coming up toward a point. Well, if you flip it upside down, it becomes a bottomless pit going down to a point. So the, the symbol of God's presence with Israel, the temple, a symbol of God's dwelling place, has now been inverted because of the false teaching that's now coming from the temple. Now, again, the corruption of the Israel priesthood and the rejection of the Messiah by the religious elites in Jerusalem is a big factor in Revelation. John is saying that the temple has now been inverted because of its rejection of Christ, because of its, its persecution of the church from the Jews that we see spoken of in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And later on, these false prophets, the, the corrupt priesthood is going to ally with the beast of Rome against the church. So if that's true, then it seems like what's happening is this. Satan is given authority. He doesn't take it for himself. God actually gives him the keys to this pit. He's given the ability to unleash a demonic horde to corrupt the temple, to corrupt its teaching, to draw people into a frenzy against the church. But who's going to be preserved from this false teaching? Who's going to be preserved from this demonic frenzy? Well, those who've been sealed by God. Remember, that's speaking and, and, and looking back to the 144,000 that God sealed in Revelation chapter 7. The martyrs of God are going to be preserved from false teaching because they're going to be faithful to true teaching, even to the point of shedding blood. And when we think about preservation, we think, oh, that's God preserving us from death. But in reality, no, it's God preserving us through death. It's by being faithful to the truth, even to the point of shedding blood, that we conquer and we overcome, just like Christ did. And so these sealed martyrs, even though they're going to die and give up their blood, they're protected from this demonic horde. They're protected from this demonic possession because they've been sealed by God. They cannot harm them. What a great assurance that the forces of evil can't take you over. You can certainly be affected by them, but if God has marked you out as his own, you're protected. You have power. You don't have to be afraid of these demonic forces if you maintain the truth and trust in Christ. Now, this is the big point that he's getting at. Satan wears a leash. Again, he receives keys from God. He receives this time of five months to uh, bring havoc. 
but it's, it's borrowed time. It's time given to him. And he can't lead astray the people God has sealed as martyrs. As Martin Luther once said, Satan is God's devil. Satan wears a leash. He can never pull a fast one on God. God is in control. They're not trading punches. Everything Satan does is under the sovereign purview of God. He can't win and he won't win. And we're going to see another reason why he can't win. It's because as many forces as there are against the church, God himself has imbued the church with his own spirit and his heavenly blessing. And I think that's what's on display in trumpet number six. Let's read the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." The sixth trumpet unleashes an untold myriad of soldiers on horses in red sapphire and yellow armor, sent out by four angels, once bound at the Euphrates, but now free. And these soldiers carry plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that kill a third of mankind. Okay, so this is kind of weird. Some commentators interpret this army as the Roman legions assaulting Jerusalem in red sapphire and yellow armor, and they're coming from the Euphrates. But others disagree. And actually, Peter Lightheart argues that the sixth trumpet is depicting not an evil army, but the church armed with the word of God, counterattacking the satanic locusts of the fifth trumpet. Okay, that, that might sound bizarre. You hear about this, it's like they're killing third of mankind, fire, brimstone, sulfur. They seem like a pretty evil group of people. But uh, there's some reasons why Lightheart actually says this is symbolic of the church as the counter army against this demonic horde. Here's a couple reasons. First, the Bible refers only to saints and angels with the term myriads. You think about Daniel 7. And only Israel's armies receive specific numbers, like twice 10,000 times 10,000. Numbered armies are holy armies in the Old Testament. Second, the angels, not demons, are the ones who lead this army. And these angels were prepared for this moment, this moment of judgment. So God is holding back, it seems like, a heavenly army to be led by angels against this locust army uh, in the fifth seal. Third, the reference to the four horns of the golden altar ties this back to the beginning of chapter 8 when an angel casts fire from the altar in response to the prayers of the martyrs. The angels lead an army as an answer to the prayers of the martyrs. Fourth, the location of the Euphrates links the sixth trumpet to the sixth bowl that we're going to see later on. And the sixth bowl features God's army heading in to fight the beast's army across the Euphrates. So there seems to be a link here. It's probably talking about the same army. It's the good guys. So these red, sapphire, and yellow armored riders are on the side of light. Finally, the sixth trumpet links thematically and linguistically to the raising of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. The two witnesses in Revelation 11, I'm going to explain later in a later episode, represent the church in its opposition to the beast. 
So the sixth trumpet anticipates that with this symbolic imagery of a myriad of soldiers led by angels against satanic forces. Okay, so maybe that sounds like a lot. If you want more details on that, pick up Peter Lightheart's Revelation commentary, or you can check out some of the stuff on YouTube. I think it's a compelling case, but you know, you can decide for yourself. Okay, but what about the fire, smoke, and sulfur? This is the heavenly army. Why are they sounding like demons? And it's coming from their mouths. That's a key detail. How are they killing a third of mankind? Doesn't sound very Christian-like. Well, this is tricky, but again, Revelation chapter 11 sheds light. In Revelation 11, the two witnesses breathe out the fire of God's word onto their enemies. So fire from your mouth is important. Smoke, what about this smoke that comes from the mouths of these riders and their horses? Smoke fills the heavenly temple at the beginning of chapter eight with the incense of the prayers of God. Okay, what about the sulfur? The church testifies to the sulfur of the lake of fire. So sulfur is judgment language. It testifies to God's judgment that awaits those who reject the gospel. Now, Alistair Roberts notes that fire, smoke, and sulfur echo Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2.16 because he says that the gospel is an aroma of death to the unbelieving. This might be what it means for this heavenly army to kill a third of the people. Uh, this is, again, this is speculative and it's tricky. It could refer to people hearing the gospel and being offended and thus dying. They, they, it's the aroma of death to them. Or they're actually dying and converting and repenting. Because later on, we're going to see that those who uh, are not killed by the message of the gospel never end up repenting of their idolatry. So maybe, maybe that's what he's saying. The sixth trumpet reveals God's heavenly army in the church. They're preaching the gospel with the fire of the spirit, the fire of the word of God. And it's on the wings of the prayers of the saints in the smoke that fills the heavenly temple. That's what empowers their mission. And they're doing it by preaching a gospel also of sulfur, of the second death, the lake of fire, of the final judgment of God that will come to those who reject this message. And as it spreads, it brings an aroma of death, but some die in conversion and they repent. And if they refuse to repent, Peter Lightheart suggests that anyone who rejects the gospel aroma of fire, smoke, and sulfur are going to feel the serpent's bite in the end. So he's talking about the fact that these armies have tails like serpents. And you're like, well, aren't serpents bad? Well, not necessarily. Jesus told us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, Matthew 10, 16. So people are going to reject the gospel and it's going to give them the serpent's bite in the end. They're going to feel the weight of their sin. The fact that they're actually allying with the serpent's forces. They're being foolish by rejecting the gospel. Maybe a little speculative. I think it makes a lot of sense though. You decide for yourself. Regardless, we see in the last two verses that even though God brings this power and this judgment, people remain hard-hearted. Listen to the last two verses of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So God reveals himself in power and judgment and people refuse to repent. So again, Israel plays the part of hard-hearted Pharaoh, refusing to relent despite the destruction of his nation. And it's foolishness. People are clinging to idols. They can't see, hear, or walk. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not having ears to hear or eyes to see. So even a Jew can commit idolatry by rejecting Christ. They've made the temple. They've made their dietary laws. They've made their own, perhaps, ethnicity an idol. And they've rejected the true God. Both Jews and pagans need the light of Christ. But only the work of the Spirit, the fire, 
the sulfur and the incense that comes with the word of God can be aroma of life to dying people. And it's really hard. I remember an old pastor once told me how disheartening it was to see men in their 80s approaching death, refusing to repent of their sin. Don't think that you can live a life of debauchery and then you're just going to flip a switch at the end. People become more and more hard-hearted. And sometimes God's judgment, instead of waking people up to their need to repent, it actually hardens them because they end up hating God even more when it's meant to be a way for them to come to their sense and realize, I don't want to face a God who's going to judge me. I want to be in the right with him. God's kindness gives us one more day to repent. Don't let that opportunity pass you by if you're listening to this. But what an encouragement to the church. Do we think about the gospel like that? It brings fire. It is, it's, just, it's almost this destructive force. It dismantles things. It cuts people to the heart. It, it brings about sovereign power into this world. I don't know if we think about it that way. We're not just doing this harmless exchange of ideas. There is power behind the preaching of the word of God, behind the prophetic power of the church. And we're going to see that in full force in the coming chapters. Stay tuned for that.